0: The uncanny thing about the drive is that it's a will of its own, Mm -hmm. you know, and and the truth of the matter is that um, uh, the drive is also dangerous, you know, I mean, we can see this, you study the life of any creative artist, you know, like, uh, we just had the Elton John movie just came Mm -hmm. out and so on, you know, and you see that uh, in every great creative life, there's just any amount of Mm self-destruction that goes along with that and it's really fear of that and I, and I and as i said i emphasize it's not misplaced fear it is uh correctly you know assess fear that really keeps uh people from finding their greatest potential
1: welcome to the crazy wisdom podcast today was a very special interview i did with norland Taez, who is an artist a mythologist an educator a teacher uh, he studies the popovu which are a mayan people who had a lot of interesting philosophy that maps well with the concept of crazy wisdom. I don't want to say it's a concept because it's kind of exists in reality, you know, it's like when you get access to this wisdom that is beyond the intellectual mind. So definitely we covered a lot of topics and I love how I found Norland. It was through another guest of mine, Howard Teich, uh, who I interviewed several months ago and Howard was like, you have to interview this guy. He's got some really interesting insights into the Popol Vuh and Mayan mythology and how that intertwines with Freud and Jung. Uh, so it's really interesting, cause I love it. Cause it, like one of the most interesting things about this work is that it does not matter what race you are. It does not matter your socioeconomic status. This stuff that we're talking to is available to anybody at any time, right here, right now in this moment, It is up to you whether you turn towards that or whether you turn towards falseness, lies. The truth of this moment is ever present. It's never gone away. It's been with you since you were born. It's been with you, with quotation marks, since before you were born, because the atoms in your body were once part of something else. They will be part of something else later after you die. So this fiction that we have, that we are separate individual beings with a stable sense of self is a fiction, uh, and we are intertwined intimately with all of the universe. So, Norland gives some really great insight into this, and I hope you find it valuable. Please let me know what you think. If you have any thoughts from this episode, please tweet to me at Stuart Alsup III. I. Um, I will try my best to engage. I love what people are bringing to me through twitter it's i don't want to treat it as this thing with a bunch of followers I please don't follow me but please do tweet to me with your ideas your thoughts what you've gained what you've lost ways i could do better what you know what you don't know bring it all welcome to the crazy wisdom podcast my guest is norlin teyes he is an artist a mythologist an educator teacher and he's got a background in entertainment uh, and the reason we're going to have a discussion today is he's been studying the Mayans, particularly the Popol Vuh, uh, and and the mythology behind behind uh, what they say and its relationship to crazy wisdom. Uh, and I'm really excited to have you on, Norland. Uh, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be here and uh, to share this uh, this time with you. Uh, I'm a big fan of your show, as as probably other guests have pointed out. How how apt the title is. Uh, uh, when it comes to discussing uh, these the, the depths of the human soul and and the, the, the human spirit and and um, since we are entering a shamanic realm mm. um, when we speak about uh, the Popol Vuh uh, and the uh, esoteric traditions of the Maya
1: and who are the Popol Vuh and what did they have to say?
0: Well, the Popol Vuh is. Uh, uh, translated as book of the council, book of the people. Uh, but in my contention, um, uh, it is just as well understood as the wisdom of the peoples. Uh, it has considered like the Maya Bible. Um, many scholars have lauded it for being uh, the most consummate uh, literary document we have of Native American wisdom not just uh, in Central America, but beyond. Uh, uh, The motifs uh, and archetypes that we find in the Popol Vuh uh, can be found way north uh, of the Rio Grande and as well as south to the Incas. Um, And then, of course, in Mesoamerica, uh, where it had its birthplace.
1: Mm. And I feel like most people, I don't want to go too much into the New Age kind of thought about Mayans, but a lot of people kind of, have this idea that the Mayans came up with a lot of stuff that is important for today. Is that correct?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that mythology, especially these um, uh, foundational narratives, foundational myths, uh, the stuff that makes up the sacred uh, book of the people, um, uh, is is, is a great container for sort of the perennial wisdom of the ages. I mean, there is uh, certainly, a argument we can make in terms of um, of a uh, 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 prima philosophia, a a a, a or philosophia perennis, as, as also uh, it, it's called. Uh, and um, the Bible is a prime example of that. I mean, we would have to compare it to the Bible and uh, the Mahabharata. Uh, it, it, its account of time, for example, it's unparalleled. Um, because it, it goes back to the, even before the creation, right through the creation of the world and, and humanity, and that whole struggle that the gods, um, have to undergo in order to, uh, give uh, birth to human consciousness, right down through the historical era, uh, of the establishment of the tribes and, uh, and uh, the, uh, iconic, uh, Places where all the major uh, houses of the Native Americas uh, 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 were distributed, uh, down to the Conquista of 1492. I mean, so it's uh, a phenomenal account of time, and, and in many, uh, uh, that's why sometimes the Bobo was also referred to as the Book of Time, uh, time being uh, a huge. Uh, access uh, um of its um, of its kind of wisdom which um i'm really excited i do think it does have a lot of relevant uh uh things to tell us today
1: well let's talk about time cuz for me my conception of time has changed a little bit over the last few years as i've done more of these kind of wisdom practices and and uh and time no longer seems as linear as it once did uh, the more that i tune into what's going on right now, the more it seems nonlinear and just like, everything always happens right now, even if it's in the future. And like everything that happened in the past is all part of this one continuum we know of as now. Um, what what do you think based based upon your readings? Uh, do they talk about this at all?
0: No, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the Maya famously have two Distinct uh, timekeeping systems, two different calendars. Uh, one that is organized around the, the rotations and the movements of the sun, the 365-day calendar, uh, which is considered to be the civic calendar of the year. Uh, you know, it maps out the seasonal changes, so it's a uh, very much astronomically based. Um, but mm-hmm. right within it, there is a smaller circle of the uh, lunar and Venusian calendar, the Tolkien, uh, which um, is a shorter cycle, 260 days. And it has more of a, what we would call it astrological
2: uh, mm. a function. Mm.
0: Um, and so the account of time, of any particular moment in time is always considered to be an intersection between Two fundamental modes of timekeeping. Um, uh, the, uh, as I said, the smaller the Tolkien is, the sacred calendar, famously. So it really has to do with uh, our relationships to all the powers and and uh, and influences that come to us from within the psyche, from within the human soul. Um, whereas the solar calendar accounts for all the external factors as it were you know that uh come to make up um, a moment in time Mm. so it's not as simple as though a contrast between linear and and circular because um uh, what you find is that uh, with the maya they have just as much a strong linear conception of time in fact their account of creation is a it's a linear type of evolution from um different Types of material. In fact, I, 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 one of the most exciting things uh, about the Popol Vuh its account of creation, and of course the temporality uh, that is involved in it. So, because the temporality of creation is, of course, the sacred temporality mm. um, of the human soul, and uh, and uh, which comes into play at any point in the history of the universe
2: mm.
0: you know that in which there is a, a sudden um, emergence uh, of uh, new uh, new horizons of uh, of knowledge and existence
1: this is really interesting because this seems to be leading to a sense of progress so you know this word progress is really interesting because it implies this linearity. It's, it kind of seems more related to the sun and the external kind of values and stuff like that. And you have all civilizations seem to have go- undergone a rise of thought around the axial age, around the time that that um, that Plato was talking, that Indian philosophies were being developed, um, that you know uh, things uh, things in China were 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 starting to take over, and also things in the in in in, um, in Mesoamerica. Uh, all started at the same time, and then it seemed like there was a global collapse uh, where where things left left the the consciousness of human beings, and we kind of descended back into a dark age of thought. And you know, and and I was just reading the other day about how uh, the Enlightenment era thinkers in Italy, the they, when they were just coming out of this dark age, they started to find these Greek books uh, through the Arabs and through these other other people who had who had saved it, uh, and they started developing science. But and the, but they couldn't go and talk to anybody about the science except for go and look at these books that had been had been written. Um, and, and then they started to develop science more and more. And then then in the universities, they started to have people they could go talk to about this stuff as opposed to just kind of looking at the, what the other books say. And this process isn't even done. Like I, one of my, my favorite um, scholars, Sanskrit scholars, who goes and is translating a bunch of documents that we haven't been translated from Kashmir and from India about this thought that had been developed there that had just disappeared. Uh, what do you think about this kind of disappearance of wisdom or... And it kind of gets into perennial wisdom as well.
0: Well, and and this is uh, an interesting topic because um, what what I what my fundamental experience with the popol vu was always to um, kind of take up um, uh, uh, the whole kind of set of initial assumptions that we we bring into whenever we study. You know, other cultures, especially so-called primitive hmm. cultures or, or ethnic cultures, uh, um, we 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 are often very unaware of the implicit biases like that we bring. Um, and in fact, um, this is not necessarily a negative thing either. Um, uh, part of my work uh, with the Popol Vuh was really aided by philosophical hermeneutics uh, hmm. coming out yeah. of. Uh, Uh, Hans-Gorg Gadamer, you know, the student of Heidegger, and um, where uh, Gadamer is famous for um, rehabilitating prejudice, in a Mm -hmm. sense, Uh, you know, like uh, uh, showing that prejudice is not just um, a negative um, starting point, but in fact, it is kind of like our initial anchor um, Mm -hmm. when we approach uh, something which is unknown, you know, like uh, we have to start from these, uh, basic assumptions, as I said, or, or, or popular assumptions, um, and where, and, wherein, you know, we, we tend to, um, uh, uh, sometimes, you know, like, uh, uh, gl- uh without knowing, uh, a lot of our bias comes in the way we glorify even, uh, mm-hmm. some of these, uh, uh, ancient cultures and, and we put them kind of on a pedestal and, and then we supposedly, you know, have lost, uh, I mean, you know, you got movies like Avatar. You know, like, mm-hmm. which kind of play out this sort of ultimate liberal, uh, let us say, uh, 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 fantasy of um, of the uh, uh, appropriation of the other um, mm. through uh, 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 idolatry or glorification. Let us say. Um, um, so it's, um, it's it's important. But what the popol vu, for example, I mean. Uh, began kind of imparting its wisdom to me was when me you know a central american native born you know like start trying to get in touch with my roots and my culture you know like i go to study the the book and in fact the way i i came to the Boo was a very personal was very much an inner journey because i i right after i graduated from cal arts where i studied animation and painting classical drawing and and design, um, I started having all these dreams, these, these amazing archetypal dreams, which were mind-boggling and I couldn't understand. I didn't have any context for them uh, until uh, just uh, in that period, my dad had traveled uh, to Nicaragua and he brought me a little thin book uh, and, uh, and said, threw it on the table and said, here, you know, I think you'll like this. And then, you know, it was the Popol vu. And uh, you know, it's almost thirty years later. I'm um, here. I'm still studying <laughs> in the lifetime of research because when I opened it and I started reading it, it was as though it was uh, uh, sort of um, piercing a thread through all of my chaotic psychic unconscious material, and and sort of bringing a, a cosmos out of that chaos, and realizing that this, in a sense has been what i've been dreaming about this is what all of the motifs all of the weird creatures of the weird figures and i i had dreams where i i was like imprisoned in some kind of underworld uh uh, with uh, a reptilian type of monsters and and then i was able to break out out of there and walk among this ancient maya statues that started to talk to me Mm. and uh and to come alive and um um, so um, it, it was very much an inner uh, journey that, that took me to the Popovu. But uh, as we know, with all true spiritual quests, you don't know where you're going to end up. You, know, you, you, you don't know if uh, what you're going to find is, is going to be an agreement. And more often than not, it's not an agreement with your initial assumptions about what you think even a spiritual quest is about, or, or a search for identity and so on.
1: Which is very interesting because what I've been finding in my own practice is that essentially the main thing that I have that I'm that I get to uh, experience is the unknowing itself. Because everything that I think I you know I I have these plans for the future. Everyone has plans for the future. as part of the human frontal is that we plan. Uh, uh, and and a lot of times when people have trauma or or difficult experiences, they plan a lot and they 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 kind of push away certain experiences because they're, they're difficult and trying, uh, but the key element of the spiritual practice to me is jumping into the unknown. Um, and, and knowing that there is no way to know the future, the future is unknowable in detail. You can get kind of glimpses of the future or like, um, uh, premonitions, but you know, those could be any, those, you know, if, if, if the multiverse does exist and there's multiple trains of, of potential futures. How do you know whether that's the future you're going to end up in or a different future like?
0: No, uh, absolutely. I mean, that is the, I think the, the, always the, uh, the draw that, uh, the, that, uh, peaks desire, uh, for knowledge and further horizons. And, uh, this is just as much true in the hard sciences as, as it is in the, uh, hermeneutic, uh, and, uh, and philosophical uh, worlds, you know, the, that we explore. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, the unknown always has all the potential, you know, that we are trying to unlock. And so very much, uh, and, and hence, you know, one of the reasons why I really gravitated towards the work of Freud and Jung, um, who both really put forth the dimension of the unconscious. Mm-hmm. And um, and of course, Joseph Campbell, I mean, uh, 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 comes into play as well. I mean, who really took that basic lesson um, that both Freud and Jung uh, uh, taught and just almost recreated the whole field of mythology based on this depth psychological approach, um, where the unconscious is reckoned with as the Kind of matrix uh of consciousness the, the 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 sea you know the the creative sea from which the islands of of consciousness are uh, uh grow or emerge and um so that that was definitely um another factor i mean via my dreams where i became interested in depth psychology and then with the popol vu mythology it all came together so that i I ended up doing my PhD at Pacifica Graduate Institute, where they specialize in the confluence of these traditions.
1: In you know. Santa Barbara.
0: In Santa Barbara.
1: Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So what did the Popol Vuh have to say about dreams?
0: Well, um, as part of the whole shamanic uh, dimension of the Popol Vuh, certainly the what we call the unconscious um, would be, for them, more of a form of consciousness. Mm. And... Um, uh, uh, which is one of the sort of di- sh- slight shifts of perspective that um, we, we make. And in fact, though, it, it is something that when you do read Freud and Jung closely, um, you realize that if uh, they're never talking about an unconscious that is completely unknown, we, we, uh, which is sort of categorically out of uh, the question of, of, of human speech and, and even knowledge, you know, like, uh, because uh, such unconscious would simply be ineffable, you know, we, we would not be able to, to even know what we don't know, you know, I mean, mm. <laughs> uh, let alone uh, what we could know about it. Um, So um, certainly mythology, for example, I mean, the fact that Jung uncovered uh, uh, the archetypal language of mythology in the unconscious shows you, uh, validates also the psychoanalytic point that uh, later we learned from Lacan, which is that the unconscious structure as a language. So um, it is, Mm -hmm. even though it's a language that escapes our consciousness, it is nevertheless trying to tell us something. I mean, um, you know, the the whole um, uh, presupposition that dreams have meaning already implies that dreams are a language
2: mm-hmm.
0: the that the we have. A, uh, and of course, the, the way in the way in which the Maya, for example, understood language and reading and writing um, was in much more in line with um, the. Uh, Derridian notion of grammatology I mean which is I don't know very obscure but later here in America it was just simply turned into media studies mm. um, which is the idea of a multi-dimensional uh, uh, script you know which not, not only speaks in words and verbal signs but it's also just as much present in the iconography and the sculpture and the ritual in all of the manifestations of cultural life, we see um, a manifestation of the uh, of this uh, what Derrida called it in a, in a kind of almost union way arc writing mm-hmm. meaning archetypal writing or arc uh, écriture uh, maybe you have a better French pronunciation than me but but uh, but he definitely um, saw a kind of archetypal. Um, uh, dimension of 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 culture of our whole spiritual uh, and symbolic life in many media and a multi-dimensional um, uh, constructs.
1: This is really interesting. I'm just going to reflect back what what I what I heard is essentially we have language. Most people today probably identify with the part of them that speaks and uh, it creates ideas and thoughts and stuff like that. And then, and I've been reading this book called *Behave* about the neurobiology of behavior, and it talks about how there's three layers to the brain. The third layer is that layer in the, uh, of the of the cortex, which thinks and plans and speaks. Uh, and then below that is layer two, uh, which is the emotion emotional mammalian layer, uh, where you get um, emotions and the, the you know the evolutionary advantage of emotions for motivating behavior. And then layer one, you have the automatic and regulatory functions which we share with all uh eukaryotes uh uh uh, complex life which is just you know basic um eat uh sex uh food the uh and um evacuation uh and and all these layers they aren't separated from each other they all interact with each other but most people only identify with that top layer and they don't really get down to their core layers of this kind of animal thing that for millions of years we have genetic memory inside of us of these kind of states of being that were uh, first uh, uh, totally automatic and regulatory and then got into more nuanced emotion and this language that you're talking about of, of images and uh, myths all seem to get at that basically what do you think about that right
0: no that's that's a really good uh way of putting it i mean it's it certainly there's a deeper level to language um and, and to our being, I mean, which is, it's a great mystery because, I mean, you realize that the whole field of linguistic has to, in a very artificial way, kind of demarcate its object as being specifically this human uh, form of language. Um, but we, when we look at even at the microscopic level, at the way cells interact, and we can very well say communicate mm. with each other. You know, um, you could easily, uh, you know, expand the the notion of language to really extend well beyond the human uh, uh, scale of of the phenomena or the human um, dimension of the phenomena. Um, uh, In the way the DNA, for example, think of it as the fact that it is arranged as a code, you know, and uh, the code, as we know, is, again, another fundamental feature of language mm-hmm. and um, so um, the, certainly the Maya have this we could say a primordial concept of language um, which is not you know the, the word language of course uh, comes from a lingua you know which is tongue and so that's why people do associate language with spoken communication but certainly as a visual artist I mean uh, I will tell you how much images although they're mute in this lingual sense of the word are very much a language you know and you can turn to our musician friends who will tell us the same thing about music mm-hmm. being again a non-verbal language right and and at the same time you know well schopenhauer we know famously uh, thought of music as as being able to articulate the thing itself you know mm. the 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 will um in the, the heart of the cosmos of, and uh, this inaccessible thing that for Kant, you know, was an X, you know, and for Schopenhauer was the will, like, mm. as he famously said, and then for Jung and Freud became the unconscious. Mm. Um, um, because it's, it's uh, it's something that we have to really reckon with is, is language. And, and when we talk about these things, you know, because uh, um, we are after all, always trying to use language to go beyond itself you know and this is not again just particularly true of the mystical mode of discourse but it's even true in trying to recount your everyday experience or or even try to describe what this conversation is (laughs) is like you know like when we explore you know the limits of human consciousness Mm -hmm. um, all great poetry is based on the same fact. I mean, you can read Dante throughout his journey, always saying, you know, reader the language is going to fail to describe, you know, like uh, I, you know, I, nevertheless. And of course that is the virtue of the poet is that um, he presses on through the very failure of language, Mm. you know? And whereas, for example, the positive scientist, you know, might want to just stick to what can be put into a clear and articulated, you know, uh, language, um, uh, which
1: uh, is interesting in itself because it gets to the essentially this the fear of death almost because there many many people use science as a way to protect themselves and a way to uh, find certainty where no such certainty exists and where oftentimes science then leads them to that same basic uncertainty. Um, for example, when we start to think about the nature of the universe and how large the universe is and how small the universe is as well, yeah. when we get to those parts, it's like you, you, can't, yeah. you, you can't you can't model those inside of your head with or model them with language. The, the 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 word universe is such a small, like small way to identify what the universe speaks of. Um
0: and and, and of course, you know, I, I think I, I I would totally agree with you. Especially of, um, uh, of of kind of the popular or lay conception of science itself, because you know, as we know, like the, a principle of uncertainty has mm. been established as being you know structural uh, to the, the very nature of knowledge of what yeah. we can know. You know, mm. so like uh, uh, Einstein famously famously said that you know we what we can know with certainty <laughs> is is not nature itself. You know, like and and in in as much as we know nature then we we are dealing with uncertainty you know so um um, obviously you know quantum physics uh, is often evoked here i mean i think quite rightly uh uh for showing us uh the extent to which science itself you know um uh, as it were uh, gropes with this transcendental reality the same transcendental uh, reality that mystics and poets you know like Mm -hmm. are also groping with so you know we 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 always got to guard ourselves from from reducing everything to to simplistic um uh uh uh, a point you know like i i think and everything is always and we do that with people just as easily you know like we, we we think we know somebody and so on and and yet you know as we move through the years we we come to recognize that people are always much more complex and mysterious than what they appear. Often even than what they know about themselves, mm-hmm. you know, like, like. Uh, so sometimes like I, I love to talk to people uh, about their dreams, for example, like, and, uh, and even though maybe in their conscious side, they may not be the most fascinating person, you know, mm-hmm. you get them to tell you a dream and there are parts of themselves that are amazing, you know, that they're just Waiting to realize,
1: you know. You just gave me a great idea. Uh, I always like to. I like, you know. I'm interviewing a lot of people, and I always like to ask. And I take a lot of what I learned in doing these interviews into my social situations and at the parties. I like to ask interesting questions. And I'm just. I'm going to start asking people, what What did you dream about last night? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Or, or the yeah, the, the often, you know, the, their their nightmares are just as mm. revealing, you know, like. Uh, uh, but certainly, you know, dream is, is one of these uh, windows that we all have that are readily ad- accessible to the unconscious dimension of our lives. Mm. And um, and what mythology, what, you know, uh, studying these ancient traditions, I think always um, does, the healing kind of effect that, uh, that comes from them is precisely in creating a kind of bridge between the conscious and the unconscious. Mm. You know, the, the, the unconscious is is often just locked out, just flat out, you know, suppressed, you know, not not so much even repressed, uh, but completely suppressed. Um. And then, of course. You know, as Freud shows, you know, you you really are never successful in repressing. I mean, the, then the things you do involuntarily—the tics, the phobias, the delusions, and so on—you know, like mm. all the neurotic complications, if not worse—you know, like they come back to hunt us, um, precisely to the extent that we lack this bridge with our unconscious side.
1: So I've um, I've got a I've got a question for you. I want to I want to get really down into the into the popol View vu and your study of them. What is the most the thing that you learned from this perennial wisdom that has most influenced your life, or most made a positive impact on your life, or may, maybe a negative impact?
0: No. Well, the funny thing is that the very my very study had the structure of a shamanic initiation, mm-hmm. and something that I, I I came to realize when I was deep into it, you know, like, and as I was reading the anthropological literature, you know, it was almost like a uh, uh ironic how um a lot of the symptoms you know because as we know you know from the study of the shamanic traditions there the initiation uh, happens often through a kind of illness mm. you know and uh, misfortunes that before you know like uh like i i snapped my achilles heel for example like right uh during that time when i was playing tennis and then i go and sit down to read how uh Broken foot is a common uh, Mm. uh, shamanic initiation Mm. uh, symptom, you know, like uh, not to mention, like, loses all his money is another one. And uh, and, uh, with all the student loans, you know, I uh, don't even want to get there. Uh, But Mm. uh, so, that, that was uh, definitely, I mean, uh, a transformation of a rewiring of your brain that you go through. I mean, our, our professors would often tell us that, that the whole dissertation uh, writing process uh, took the place of, 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 a, of deep diving psychotherapy, mm-hmm. you know, like, I mean, of how you are really there. I mean, I think we all we're all brought to the school by a kind of crisis, you know, um, uh, in my case, you know, I was becoming a new father, you know, mm. with two mm. young kids, you know, like, and, uh, and I I realized how much um, of, of my motivation came from this kind of shock at this whole, you know, kind of new world of parental responsibility, you know, mm. <laughs> movies like Eraserhead, you know, like <laughs> came mm. to mind uh, mm-hmm. as I was uh, uh, going through this, but but so the, the, just going through this sort of shamanic initiation, you know, like um, changed not just this or that, but everything, you know, just at the same time as I became a father and uh, it changes everything, you know, is, is, is very much analogous, you know, um, uh, uh, in, in both cases, you know, like, um, well, but again, one of the most surprising things though is the way it kind of reversed you know, there's that whole transvaluation of all values uh, mm. experience, you know, and um, and a lot of it that came around the study of myth and philosophy, you know, I mean, to put it in, in rather simplistic terms, I could say that I went in to the study of the Popol Vuh and the dissertation, having studied Jung for 10 years and feeling like I was completely, you know, sold, I mean, mm. on, on Jungianism and Jung, you know, had was the ultimate and then only to sort of find myself among a whole community of of similar minded (laughs) and you're kind of like even Jung often said that it's like if if you want people to to really start thinking you know just get them in a room with a bunch of people like them similar and then you start to see all the flaws all the delusions and all the problems you know with your with your uh point of view and uh and when you get like a bunch of intuitive types, you know, which are often attracted to um, this kind of material, you know, like in the, in the hive, like uh, the Pacifica experience, then you do uh, all the stuff surface up. And I became much more um, sort of convinced uh, of the error that Jung made and, and, and his rebellion um, against Freud, you know, mm-hmm. because um uh, you realize especially, and it's unfortunate that many Jungians are still parroting Jung's criticisms of Freud, which are very personalistic, you know, and very reductionist. In fact, you know, Freud is often one of the typical Jungian propaganda against Freud is that, you know, he's reductionist and, and Jung is this creative guy and everything. But in fact, they're very, reading of Freud is re- reductionist, you know, like a, uh, and um and the same thing with sexuality you know like um whereas um sexuality was the the great um see the thing with the freudian idea of sexuality is that it it didn't freud didn't talk about it as a biological category Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. talked about as it were as a metaphysical category what what he showed Mm -hmm. is the how sexuality and this is why it's always been in behind religions uh, there's always been a, a kind of an unwritten competition between sexuality and religion you know the, the they are almost opposite forces you know and and in many cases i mean it's very clearly so so you know um so you know that's another example of how like uh, freud on the other hand saw what we could very well say the archetypal dimension of sexuality you know, the fact that sexuality is just as much a spiritual uh, a power, as it, and, and Freud did not think of it as a pure biology. No, 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 no. That's terrible misconception. He, he actually defended the psychological point of view against reductionists. I mean, you, you can read that in Interpretation of Dreams, you know, where he really championing the psychological, specifically psychic point of view, mm-hmm. you know yeah. that um, not a, over against the biologistic, you know, reductionism of his time. So, so that was my, you know, as far as my journey with with the material, you know. So, uh, I was going to put it in simple terms, you know. High en- I entered as a Jungian and 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 came out as a Freudian. <laughs> <You>
1: know, like, <laughs> and 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 uh, and your study of Popol view helped that essentially turn you into a Freudian it,
0: th- that is just it that the Popol Vuh agrees with Freud you know like I mean uh, over against I uh, the unionism mm. that for example here's a, a prime example the very category of myth as it is taught among unions you know uh and even Campbell is guilty of this as an ahistorical mm. category as supposedly mm-hmm. as something completely you know eternal and um, abstract for that, for that uh, reason, completely generic, you know, uh, when you're talking about something that has no historical weight. Um, But the Popol Vuh, uh, as you begin to learn from every kind of student of it, is uh, it's a mytho-historic uh, poem. Um, So this whole category of mytho-history, which I've kind of, building my entire now uh, uh work on now already kind of subverts um the this whole dichotomy between myth mm-hmm. on the one hand and history on the other and supposedly freud was on the side of history you know right and, and jung is on the side of myth and so, so, so uh,
1: yeah uh, i have an interesting uh, nuance to that which is that it kind of comes from my study of psychedelics psychedelics not so much my my taking of psychedelics but my my study of what people see traditionally when they're taking psychedelics and a lot of times they have experiences that people are putting into databases and then are starting to see similarities among a lot of different people but you can't take <clears throat> you can't take our time and our history out of that so anybody taking psychedelics as a part of our current Um, human experience is taking him at a certain place at a certain time where there's a techno global uh, there's a global culture of technology use which is spreading these ideas and spreading these cultures far and far wide uh, into a globalized kind of uh, sense of of consciousness Uh, and so you can't strip that away because the history itself is a part of those mythological as, as I believe you were saying right
0: yeah exactly I mean the the all when you then start to look at all the primordial myths, I mean all the fundamental myths like the Bible, it's it's another mixture of myth and history. And in fact, um, there was a book that uh, came out um, uh, uh, also around the time I was doing the research, actually a few years earlier, um, uh, by Joseph Mali called "Myth History: mm. uh, The Making of Modern Historiography." Mm. Um, so what he saw is that, uh, and he goes back to the work of Vico, John Battista Vico, you know, who, whose central notion of vera narratio, you know, true myth, which is translated as true myth, became kind of like the key uh, with which to study the whole realm of culture and, uh, and human uh, endeavor. Um, um, because, um, m- so myth without history is ideology, hmm. and simple, hmm. you know. And often I find the people who are saying that they love myth, they they wanna, and then when it, and then you have to bring the the nasty historical stuff, <laughs> and suddenly you know it spoils the whole game because in the end of it, it's not really myth that they wanted. They wanted an ideology, hmm. you know. And and the line that separates ideology and myth uh is paper thin i mean um uh, when we think of ideology people like to say well ideology is a rational construction where myth is is irrational it comes well again ideology takes its force its power it's it's convincing and emotive you know power precisely from its mythic core because ideology co-ops the archetypal reality, let us say, the archetypal core of, of myth, of true myth, on the other hand, and uses it for its own purpose, mm. you know, like, so.
1: Like uh, Hitler, and, and Hitler taking the, <laughs> the myths of the German people and turning them into a fascist uh, uh, a fascist uh, use, yeah.
0: Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, we have our own uh, examples mm. nowadays and our own political, I mean, who's mm. not gonna recognize beyond uh, behind the make America great, you know, like mm. the myth of the golden age, of that, that time, you know, like when you know human beings were beautiful and, and white and I <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, undisturbed, you know, but, and mm. so on. You know, so um every kind of convincing um, um um the the again the emotional power of propaganda doesn't come from the rational construction of of its tenets, but precisely from the mythic core. So
1: which gets you know, back, we, which goes back again to my point of of the three layer brain and that mammal, the mammalian emotional core that is deeper to the right. language itself.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, we know this from focus groups. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, from I mean, the, the psychoanalysis, in fact, brought by uh, here in America by uh, Freud's uh, 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 grandkid, uh, one of his, his or nephew, I believe, like. Uh, and uh, who started the whole public relations industry, you know,
2: and created mm.
0: the whole kind of basis of, of how we do advertising, you know, how uh, advertising understands this well. And advertising is not trying to convince you rationally of anything, it's, it's trying to associate an unconscious archetypal emotion, you know, like with the product, you know, like, and uh, I mean, what a cooker, that's why happiness, for example, I mean, it's a deeply ideological. Category, you know, mm-hmm. like I mean, we we see that it's it's Coca Cola's now slogan, you know, open happiness, you know, it's uh, uh, it's this myth again, um, which is mm-hmm. also foundational in our country, you know, the pursuit of happiness and so on, and um, we, and you know, without reckoning that, you know, maybe in our pursuit of happiness, we can, you know, wreck a lot of destruction, and and you know, like we we there's going to be a lot of, I mean. You could say you know that the most evil person was pursuing their happiness, you know, mm. following well, their bliss. Yes.
1: That, that gets gets into an interesting question about uh, personal happiness, collective happiness, but also one that a lot of people um, don't see a nuance in is something the 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 uh, Advaita Vedantins talk about, which is conditioned happiness versus unconditioned happiness. Um, and the sense that in the condition, in the conditioned world, you'll have happiness when you get these certain things and you place a condition on them, but then you'll lose it as soon as you go. And, but then there's this other aspect, which is unconditioned bliss or happiness, which has no conditions, but if it has no conditions, how do you attain it? Because anything you do to attain it will be de facto a condition. Uh, so if, if you've conditioned yourself, then how, how do how you find this? Does, is there anything that shows up in the Popol view about either that or meditation or spiritual psycho practices, anything like that?
0: Well, in terms of what the, the sort of the fundamental pursuit of, uh, let us say, that is taking place, because it is, uh, the Popol view is a very, it's an alchemical text. It's a very um, much goal-oriented it's aiming towards the creation of humankind. But the interesting thing is that the way it refers to hum- humanity mm. is not by saying that it wants to create human individuals,
2: mm.
0: but uh, the it, what it's called the human design, the human work, the human pattern. I mean, these are all different translations for um, what the gods were after. So you can see that they were very much um, after a certain form of consciousness, and um, and they they went through trial and error. I mean, very much like alchemists, they started out with a prima materia, you know, which was the, the the mud where they created the mud people. But they turned out to be a dismal failure. You know, they 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 couldn't even reproduce. They they had no barely any consciousness at all. They melted right back into the. Ground. So they had to be wiped out. The gods very much created and destroyed uh, as part of the process. So it's um then they tried wood as their fundamental material, and the wooden people were born. And they had wooden children, they had wooden daughters, wooden sons, they had a full-on society. In fact, I, I love the bit about the wooden people as being very much reflecting. It of our society you mm. know as uh, in terms of a society that is purely Rigid. materialistic mm. and uh, because the wooden people were precisely that a purely material humanity and they were explicitly described in the Popol Vuh as being soulless mm. as having no spirit even though they had a consciousness they had even arts you know they had a society so they have forms of organization um, and yet, if the Maya to this day refuse to see uh, their lineage directly connected to the wooden people. Uh, you know, okay. Because uh, the, the, their true lineage begins at the dawn of the fourth creation after the gods had attained uh, the goal of, of the emergence of the people of the corn, who were mm. the, the, the primordial ancestors of the Maya. Mm. And, um, and which came, you know, uh, only after the gods, in a way, realized that they, it wasn't a matter of some material, some external material, some natural resource that they needed to find, but it was themselves. It was until the twins of the feathered serpent jumped into the alchemical pot of creation that humanity would be born, you know, mm. and, and, uh, So, um, there's
1: there's one more, you said, you said, so you said people of mud, people of the wood and the people of the corn, were there any other, uh, peoples that came out?
0: Well, then in between there was a whole, um, uh, race of Titans, Mm. uh, which were again, this kind of intermediate, um, space between nature and culture. You know, often we, we think about you know, like civilization being culturalization, you know, and like leaving nature, and um, and that before that, it's a sort of prehistoric, you know, like purely, you know, like animalistic mm. form of life. But all these ancient mythologies speak of an uh, interesting in-between nature and culture, where mm. it's almost like the, and the Titans are an example of this, where they are they are superhuman and sub-god um, mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time. You know, like they're, they're more than human, yet less than a god. Interesting. And they're they're uh, titans. And and uh, clearly, you know, from uh, uh, our psychological point of view, it's clear to see that this denotes a state of psychic inflation.
1: It reminds me of the elite, the socioeconomic elite currently today, uh, th- those who are mastering technology and trying to get the powers of gods, but having inflated egos in the process.
0: Yeah, I mean that's the Titanic individualism that that mm. we preach, you know, that is so prevalent in our culture, and and that's again another uh, fundamental tenet that the popol vu completely overturns. Mm. Is this this uh, uh, hyper individualism that has become our norm and our you know the uh, praised goal or desideratum, you know, the thing we we all sort of strive to be these titanic individuals, you know. And in the Popol Vuh, the titanic individuals are portrayed as clearly being a disturbance and a obstacle mm. to the process of creation of humanity. You know, what the true human form of, of organization, I mean, not, not just individual, but also collective. So so instead of the individual, the Popol Vuh uh, features the twin ships, you Know just the, the twinship of the feathered serpent, uh, Unapu and Ishbalanke. They're the, the two twins, often, they're we're told they're boys. Um, but in my reading and uh and uh with some other feminist scholars, we also argue for the femininity of uh, one of the twins for the literal femininity mm. of mm. Ishbalanke, so that you have always a, a pair, uh, and the whole struggle against the forces of death in Shibalba where the feathered serpent twins must return again and again they have to come back be defeated then then be reborn then come back again and there's this this beautiful real you know uh dialectical kind of process where it's not just a a fiat it's not like a once and then it's done Um, but it's really a, a a question of repetition And repetition being one of these categories of metaphysics Mm. that is, um, not often, um, talked about, but Kierkegaard, you know, wrote a book on, on repetition. And so did Gilles Deleuze, you know, also has a difference in repetition and Kierkegaard already saw it. Of course, we have Nietzsche with the eternal return Mm. of the same, you know, like, and, and so the, and Jung, of course, saw in repetition, basically the dynamic, uh, Aspect of every archetype, you know, like an archetype is not just something that happens once but it's something that is making you repeat mm. something mm-hmm. over and over, you know, yeah. like again mm-hmm. and uh, and of course in the Freudian view, it's the drive and uh, uh, the death drive which for Freud rather than being, you know, he actually distinguished it from the Nirvana from a, a wish for extinction um, but he more associated the death drive for, with a compulsion to repeat rather than a um, some kind of wish to die in some, in some literal sense. You know, it's like um, it's, uh, the power of compulsion, which uh, mm. Jung recognized the, you know, the, the, the alchemy of sulfur, for example, uh, and a kind of a deep mystery of the human psyche because um, the drive, again, which is often what i think people are looking for you know like people like who go for self-help and stuff it's often because they're they don't have a that drive is is squandered
1: and they and they know they know what to do they know what they should be doing but they just don't have the they feel like they know what they should should be doing but they don't have the the will to actually do it essentially
0: well you know the drive is is the the uncanny thing about the drive is that it's a will of its own Mm -hmm. you know and and the truth of the matter is that um uh, the drive is also dangerous you know i mean we can see this you study the life of any creative artist you know like uh, we just had the elton john movie just came Mm -hmm. out and so on you know and you see that uh in every great creative life there's just any amount of Mm self-destruction that goes along with that Mm -hmm. and it's really fear of that and and i and as i said i emphasize it's not misplaced fear it is uh correctly you know assess fear that really keeps uh people from finding their greatest potential Mm. you know and um it's not because uh and whereas the positivistic formulas you know try to again split split you from that
1: yeah i want to you're saying that the there is a a that there we have this fear that our greatest strength will that our, our primal fear is not of something wrong happening, but something great happening, our own greatness. But you're saying it's not an unfounded fear, because that greatness can lead to this same type of creative destruction that happens to a very creative individual in their lives in their personal lives.
0: Well, or you could put it in terms of sacrifice, you know, Mm. I mean, we all know, like, uh, I mean, we, we can look at the greatest athletes, the greatest artists, you know, like, and we see, of course, the magic when they're out there at their peak performing the amazing things that they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often you look at where's their personal life, where's their, <laughs> you're like, where's uh, you know, like all of that is, I mean, their childhood in many cases, you know, like with athletes, you know, who have to travel around the world and uh, they don't get a normal childhood, you know, like, and-
1: And that's interesting because so, it's almost like a sacrifice, Uh, in the same way that the gladiators would have sacrificed themselves or for example, in the, in the Mayans and and Aztecs with the human sacrifices as well, is that this, you're sacrificing something for the collective essentially Um, because the collective, you know, everybody watching the sports games is all kind of partaking in that, in that beautiful creation that that athlete is doing. Uh, But that athlete had to sacrifice so much of what, Everybody in the audience had easy access to, in order to to get that.
0: Well, and and this thing that is sacrificed is um, ordinary human happiness. Mm. You know, I mean, the the, the the even though you know, of course, the, the stars will tell you, of course, I'm happy and so on. Yeah. You know, until until you know they hit the the, the media and then they mm. did something horrible, mm. <laughs> you know, we hit the the OJ uh, or something. Um, mm. But um, um, because happiness, see, happiness is is something that um, fits very comfortably within the category of the pleasure principle. Now, people think that pleasure principle means simply like you're trying to, uh, like, hedonism. Maximize pleasure. pleasure. (laughs) Yeah, but um, as Freud uh, so postulated, the the pleasure principle is a principle homeostasis, Mm. Is, is precisely that's why sometimes he called it the pleasure on principle mm. because it's the principle in which we balance pain and pleasure mm. it's not uh, hedonism is not pleasurable after a while it turns into despair
1: because it, ha- it ha- because not- because we habituate to the pleasure and what would have been pleasurable no longer becomes pleasurable because our body adapts to it it becomes o. <laughs>
0: right and and what we you know what we call uh you know like delayed gratification and so mm-hmm. on i mean these are all popular formulations of the pleasure principle you know as, as freud understood it um um and so happiness even the spiritual sublime and, and especially when you start to connect it to neuronal uh mm-hmm. brain chemistry and and uh and you know like the whole uh theory of quantum consciousness you know that um you probably uh, uh, have um, come across uh, um, uh, the the study that um, is being done with microtubules in the in the brain and with some of the quantum effects, but that uh, happy happiness is is a basic um, need. It's, it's, it happens, as we know, uh, happens uh, best when we really held back for a mm-hmm. while right like that's why friday night is it is what it is <laughs> you know the whole week you know we keep uh
2: <laughs> the
0: tight you know, grip on it and then the happiness bursts on friday night and it feels so good you know mm-hmm. but it wouldn't feel as good if we're having friday night every mm-hmm. day mm-hmm. of the week you know? yeah. <laughs> every mm-hmm. night, you know so mm-hmm. um so even spiritual ha- uh bliss and and all of this it, doesn't really go beyond the pleasure principle in this sense, you know, like uh, what goes beyond the pleasure principle and and Freud, of course, you know, wrote a book uh, called beyond the pleasure principle. And so, you know, all the unions who say Freud is all about pleasure. It's like, they stopped reading Freud, you know, when Jung stopped reading Freud, you know, I mean uh, they don't have the complete picture because Freud talked so much about the pleasure principle because it was such a, um, Uh, sort of a a catcher a dream catcher as it were you know like uh, quite literally actually in that case uh, of for uh, so much of what in popular discourse goes under the pursuit of happiness higher meaning and and all of this you know in the end healing all the talk of healing and and all of this you know like ultimately we want to feel good and there's nothing wrong with that and Freud doesn't say there's anything wrong with that you know but what he's eliminating is the, what he calls the kind of pretense mm-hmm. that we're doing something more, you know, mm-hmm. like that, 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 that uh, you know, when, yep. when something yep. feels good, it feels good, but it doesn't prove anything about the nature of the world. It,
1: it, but it, as, it human been, to, as human beings, we get the idea in our heads that, oh, I'm, I'm working really hard towards this goal. And once I reach it, I feel really good. And that means that I am... Part of the tribe or whatever or i'm i am the you know i am the i am the savior of, of this people or something like that that's what we get inside of our heads and we built this whole identity up over it
0: until we achieve it and then we realize is that it you know like <laughs> that we want the next thing you know like we want more and in, in fact uh, that's why uh we human beings um it, it's not that they're not uh capable of happiness it's that we are built to go beyond happiness mm. And to, to transcend the pleasure
2: principle you
0: know like happiness is not that complicated I mean and it's mostly a social phenomenon that's the other thing is that we tend to kind of pin it on the individual like you're in charge you know, if you're not happy it's your own damn fault mm-hmm. you know but it, it's really the social environment that creates you know your access to to basic needs to food to healthier to a good job uh, a career you know like uh, the medicine you need I mean having a family and children I mean uh, a loving wife I mean all these are uh, and that we're not talking about a mystical elite you know that can only achieve this you know mm-hmm. like I mean happiness is is in the it's within everybody's reach you know mm-hmm. like and it depends more on the social um, as individuals we're not happy with happiness mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's again the and then if you look at the popovu you realize that, Um, the the whole journeying back to the underworld, you know, is a a mythological way of talking about the death drive, you know, because a a journey through the underworld is nothing other than the operation of death drive of, Mm -hmm. of how we, again, leave the happiness. Happiness is like the Shire and the, uh, with, with the hobbits, you know, where, I mean, it's a village and suddenly the journey Takes us beyond that, mm. and that means that we experience a great suffering and pain. Mm. Mm. But the thing about um, the like uh, the category of um, death drive is that uh, the pleasure turns into jouissance is the French word. The French word is better than than we have uh, because you know it implies the pain is mixed into it. Mm. And so like when an athlete works really hard, you know, you say, you know, right, you got to uh, 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 no pain, no gain. <laughs> you know, like, um, mm. uh, there is um, a level of enjoyment that is ecstatic enjoyment where it's, it's not just, you can't describe it as happiness anymore because, you know, to put it in a, in a funny way, it hurts it so hurts. good. Mm. <laughs> you know? And it's actually what sexuality is mm. because it, again, great sex is is not just the pleasure principle, you know, (laughs) like, I mean, that is like the, the, that would be not very good sex. Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it, uh, can be you know from the whole spectrum of transcendent like spiritual experience to like really dirty kind of like crazy uh, wild sex basically, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and if it just feels kind of good, then that's kind of like vanilla and like nobody, yeah, nobody. <laughs>
0: right, right. Yeah. It's like the, the the unsatisfied wife, you know, the missionary, you know, uh-huh. like and then you're done, <laughs> and so on, you know, like enough. And so, juice songs is really a category that is different than happiness, you know, mm-hmm. and and that is more really what people are looking for, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, um, of course, you know, you, uh, if you're under repression, again, because again, happiness is a social category. You're not going to tell somebody in North Korea, you know, if you're not happy, is your fault, you know, like, yeah. or, you know, like uh, it's. Um, uh, Obviously, you know, something that has to do with the collective and and uh, the the great um, pleasure we get we, from the uh, height of achievements and human, as I said, it is is uh, not just a uh, simple happiness, you know, mm-hmm. like it's we've sacrificed so much. It t- brings tears to our eyes, you know, like, I mean, that's, again, another beautiful kind of dramatic way to, sh- to show how. Um, what we're looking for happiness doesn't bring tears to mm-hmm. to your eyes mm-hmm. you know when when you're happy it's the same thing when people say you know why do you art and i i always found very lame the answer oh because it's fun you know no, no i mean eating a pizza is fun you know <laughs> hanging out with my friends yeah you don't yeah. sacrifice you don't go through because art is fun you know it's the it's an ecstatic dionysian and mm-hmm. this is again what why Nietzsche invokes the Dionysian experience, which is, again, much more akin to death drive, you know, than... than and it is another way of talking about death drive, the Dionysian. Mm.
1: So I, I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. We're, we're going to have to do a second one in Spanish uh, and then maybe the third one in English. For our listeners, what is the most insightful thing you have to say about what you, everything that you've learned from the Popol view that will make a meaningful impact in their life um, today?
0: Well, I think that... Um, the uh, idea of the uh, hyper individualism mm-hmm. that we were often burdened when we've talked about this. Um, um, w- one of the things that reading the Popol Boom makes clear is, is how much our life is always in relationship. And uh, there's no such thing as a purely individual achievement. I mean, every, even in a sport such as tennis, you know, where, uh, or other sports where it's just one person out there, you realize they're the first to tell you that it's their whole team, their whole support system that makes that performance of that individual possible up there. So we, we have to, to realize that our sense of self in the Popol Vood teaches how much it belongs to our community, to our sense of community. It's not an either or, you know, like uh, 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 as many gurus as I would like to, to, to make you think well, it's just about you forget what I guess, happens outside. The minute you take control of your own life, the minute you start to do things and take responsibility for yourself, you have an immediate effect on the people around you and, uh, uh, and also the society at large. So it's, uh, so it's a transformation of our sense of selfhood mm-hmm. that, uh, I, I invite, uh, you know, any reader of the Popol Vuh to experience uh, uh, through that reading. And also um, the courage of failing and trying again, of this whole thing about uh, uh, failure being very much uh, uh, the precondition to success. I mean, uh, one of the things that when you read the Popol Vuh is very clearly brought to your mind is the way in which the gods fail and fail again and they try again mm-hmm. and and the hero's journey turns out to be not just and not a, a quest for some treasure you know that you're gonna get your hands off, but a a quest of self-divestment I mean
2: mm-hmm. well
0: one of the things that happens in the Popovu is that Uh, as the twins grow in power and wisdom and knowledge, and they prove themselves superior when they play the ball game of the Lords of Death, um, they still submit to self-sacrifice and dismemberment because instinctively they know that the last thing, even after besting the the Lords of Death in their favorite game, they still, the twins still retain the hubris of the heroic attitude. Mm. And so um, the hero doesn't finish, it does not complete its journey until he's able to divest himself of his own heroism, you know, so that in the end, it's not as these um, awesome ball players, you know, performing miraculous feats on the, on the ball court that the twins ultimately defeat the lords of death, but by returning very much like the motif in the Odyssey where he returns as a beggar, and, uh, and, and introduces himself in the mm. in the house among the suitors so the the twins have to return as um, mendicant children you know who are performing you know street performers and who do these magic acts and and it's through the intoxication that they their magic causes of the lords of death something which in fact they learned from their mother uh, as being really the the, the Achilles heel, the, the, this susceptibility to enchantment, to mm-hmm. intoxication that the lords of death had. So it is through these humble dances and tricks that in the end, and through a trickster's attitude, you know, a tri- because the, the twins are very much in the mold of the trickster archetype, uh, that the ultimate forces of evil are conquered
1: that's beautiful so people interested in your work how can they find you how can they find uh, find what you're working on
0: well um certainly if they want to check out all my uh, visual art norlandteyes.com uh uh, they can see um uh, what i've been up to in that realm i mean and uh as well as links to my blog that deals more with myth and uh and my writings for the joseph campbell foundation and uh at mythhistorian.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this marriage between myth and history. So um, I invite uh, definitely any any seekers to check those out.
1: Cool. Thank you so much. This has been really uh, amazing and I've learned a lot about my own life. So thank you. Thank you very much.
0: My pleasure. Me too. This has been a great opportunity.
1: I hope you enjoyed this podcast I did with Norlin Teyes. It was very impactful in my own personal life. Hopefully it's impactful in yours. I release episodes every Monday and Friday before your morning commute. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to Crazy Wisdom on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of those major platforms. We also have a YouTube channel called Crazy Wisdom, uh, and I'm just producing this content so that you can find value. Just one more thing to add. There is this framework which I found from a yoga teacher of mine, Kaya Midlin, who said that anything we do when we are trying to influence others' path lands on a spectrum from transactional to transformational. This podcast is a transactional broadcast medium. It's it's something I put out to a large public in the hopes that they can find a little tidbit that will help them live a more peaceful life. Uh, and then there's the transformational part, which is one-on-one work. I do do one-on-one work. I'm not trying to sell anybody on this one-on-one work, uh, but that's what I'm saying here is that basically... At this stage of my life, I am trying to produce a lot of transactional content. And I don't mean that in the sense that like, it doesn't matter, but it does matter, but it's on the spectrum from transactional to transformational. And you as a listener, if you're in the business of helping others, what some would call a healer, um, although there's a lot of problems with that term, then you really want to think about this transactional to transformational thing. And, And what are you doing strategically in order to make an impact on others' lives? I uh, hope this is helpful. If it is, please let me know. You can find me on Stuart uh, at Twitter uh, at Stuart Alsop. I I I have a great day.